0: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
1: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue
2: Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
3: And um, so I am Fantasy Borgo, I'm the host of the Fantasy Project, which is a podcast. Um, Everyone in the world has a podcast now, so I thought, why should I not? Um, And during my podcast, I interview people who are intermittently fascinating from the world of politics, from the world of uh, comedy, uh, from activism, from lots of different areas of life. And so I thought taking the opportunity here at the Edinburgh Festival to interview people who are doing shows would be a great way to chat to other artists about the work that they're doing. And I'm very excited that we have two fabulous artists here today. So without further ado, I'm going to invite them to the stage to join me. Uh, we have the fabulous Sam Morrison and Aaliyah Kanani. Hello, I come and get comfortable. Hello. I, I thank you for having me. Well, you're, I haven't had you yet, Sam. Um, Great. I'm very excited. Well, how long is the
1: podcast?
3: <laughs> um, I'm so sorry we don't have a couch. Every time that people come and sit down, I think, mm. wouldn't it be nice if we had a chaise lounge? And then things could take on a truly therapeutic sort oh, of character.
2: That would be so lovely. It's like, that I'll just kind of do this. Absolutely. I can slump yeah. in my chair.
3: It's a little bit hot today I'll for the, the listeners at home. We're in like a sort of uh, very hot oven-like church room. Mm. So, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's quite a lot. Um, anyway, so thrilled to have you both here. Both of you are doing work here at the Edinburgh Festival, which I think um, is, uh, well, very personal. Um, both of you are doing uh, work that's about your own lives um, and it's going to be interesting to take a little look at that. So let's start with Aaliyah. So first of all, you're, you're um, a much-travelled individual and this is kind of your origin story um, for anyone who wants to know. It's where are you from from? So could you tell us a bit about the work that you're bringing to Edinburgh.
2: Uh, sure, yeah. So this is my first time bringing a show to Edinburgh. I'm really happy to be here, finally after two years. <laughs> uh, and my show, uh, where you from? From it, it started off as just you know me trying to figure out how to talk about things like identity, you know, because I often get asked that question, and you know I try to tell people it's you know it's not a question I mind, but it's just it for me I feel like oftentimes you know when we start to you know put more and more identifying labels on folks you know we can sometimes make assumptions about what that means and there's just never been a common answer to any of the stuff in my life like you know everything from like what do your parents do for a living to you know what is your occupation or to where did you grow up to where are you from like all of these things that people might want a quick answer to to be able to have an understanding of who i am it doesn't work right and so i started writing this show and then you know as i started putting the show together i realized you know that the heart of this show actually really is about that um and, and it is something that resonates with so many people because I think we've all felt uh, kind of you know, misunderstood uh, by you know, people making assumptions about maybe our, our gender or our, our age range or, our, or what we do for a living or where we come from. And so you know, it really was really beautiful to see how much that, that resonated with folks um, beyond the question of where you're from, but just this whole idea of we are made up of more than just our labels.
3: Because I suppose sometimes when people are asking you a question like, where are you from, or where are you from, from, you know, there's two ways to ask that. There's one that you're inviting more information, but sometimes people are asking a question because they actually want to close a subject. They want to sort of better understand you, and then, right, now I can put that in a box over there.
2: Yeah, totally, totally. And and it's, as I said, it's not so much the question itself, it's the assumptions that are made about what that means. Mm. You know, so, um, you know, in, in the story that I share, um, I, I do end up talking a little bit about how I felt um, at one point in this industry, very pigeonholed, uh, just by my outer shell, you know, really, you know, and, and folks that assumed that I had to talk about certain subjects before I could share my stories, uh, because they were like, well, first you have to justify the skin you're in, and then you can tell your story, Aaliyah, and I was like, what, this doesn't have anything to do with my story, this is just what I was born into, you know, right. Uh, and so that's kind of where, you know, I feel it's, and I, and I tell the audience off the top and at the very end, I don't mind the question, where are you from? Yeah. You know, I just, I also don't know that it has as much value um, as people think it does, you know, or, or it's as defining a factor as, as folks might assume. Um, and that this idea of like otherness doesn't really exist. We're all the same.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: I have a friend who studied um, uh, at the University of Oxford, she got a, like, fabulous degree um but is a sex worker and his work obviously has nothing to do with his degree and he's convinced that when people ask him what his job is in social settings that it's a kind of sizing up question
2: totally that it's an
3: attempt to place him on a sort of hierarchical ladder um which he's uncomfortable with because he doesn't want to necessarily talk about his work being a sex worker Mm -hmm. Now, I think I think he's slightly right but also I kind of like to ask people why they're you know what they're what they are because that's you got to start a conversation somehow do you totally. know what I mean exactly
2: mm-hmm. and and that's why I, I, that's really why I, I really do emphasize in the show when I say it I say there's nothing wrong with asking somebody where they're from yeah. as far as I'm concerned Now, every individual obviously will feel how they feel about it
3: you don't want to ask them where they're from if they're from Hull because it's very <laughs> awkward for people from that <laughs> part of the world <laughs> <laughs> need to explain there's a why. lot
2: of shame they carry there isn't. could be <laughs> don't it could make be. me say it out loud (laughs)
3: Now, Sam, um, in fact, both of you, we've got two lovely transatlantic accents here today. Um, Did you do that on purpose?
2: Did you put
1: us together on purpose because we're both Americans?
2: Well, I'm a Canadian. Get out of here, Sam.
1: Wow. (laughs) And Sam. Speaking of offensive assumptions. (laughs) It's funny. I I did a podcast a couple days ago in this very building, and I said something that I was worried was going to cancel me. And now... I think we've fully followed through. We've come full <laughs> circle. No, but in my defense, we met in America twice. We did. We did, we did meet in America <laughs> the twice. The only time... I come there for your jobs. In, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we come for your jobs. You two have and crossed paths before. We have. Yeah,
2: twice. Wow. In New York she is and in Nashville. so
1: funny. Everyone she is should so go funny. see your show. She's Thanks. just like so um, engaging of a performer mm-hmm. that you just like don't want to stop watching her. It's... You're Sam, okay, ass. you can call well, me American all you want. So yeah, like- yeah, exactly. <laughs> Get no, I'm just a doing it. I like to insult people and then compliment wow, them. Just I to like that. Sort of it's called gaslighting. Yes. <laughs> it's something I invented to manipulate people for sex. And <laughs> well obviously done. I'm trying to fuck you.
0: <laughs>
1: it's nice to know I'm, I'm just so tight. sorry, you have questions. Okay. Well, because I it might be worth my
3: saying to the audience here in the room, but also to the audience at home that Sam is a gay man. Um, <laughs> just, Okay, in, in case, out me. <laughs> in case this had just breezed past
1: anybody. Um, Sam, your show is called Sugar Daddy. Yeah, it is. Well, tell us about that. So it's about meeting my late partner and then uh, finding, grief, finding humor in grief after his passing. And uh, it's a, I still have no idea how to, how to sell it. I've been leafleting and I, I keep changing it up. But it's, it's, a, it's a celebration. As I, I love talking about him and I love sharing him and so I get to do that with the show. And also, it's funny. Grief is funny. I think you guys have been through it and know that. It's, um, it's also about uh, seagull attacks and diabetes, so it's a very fun show. Yes, that's right. In, in my notes, which I prepare
3: moments before coming out here, um, I've written down that you're an anxious gay diabetic Jew. <laughs> I thought
1: that, that actually that, that wasn't in the press release. She just saw me and then <laughs> wrote that down.
3: <laughs> so there's a lot
1: there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I suppose for both
3: of you, the, the work uh, that you're presenting at the moment is very personal. For you, Elliot, uh, it's, it, it's kind of more historical, it sounds like, because your, your origin story goes quite far back. But for you, the grief is something that's still very fresh. Is that right? Oh, very much yeah. so,
1: yeah. Doing this is very helpful for it. That's why I keep doing it. And so, yeah, I mean, honestly, there are jokes that I wasn't able to tell that I wrote, like, after he passed, like, a year and a half ago, that I was only able to tell a few weeks before I got to Edinburgh, just because, like, my my grief and relationship to Jonathan is growing so much at the same time that I'm building this show. So mm-hmm. it's very fresh, but that's also, it's, I, I say that in it, I'm like, yeah, This this is a coping mechanism for me, and mm-hmm. I hope you get entertainment out of it and connect to it and find meaning in it, but... It really is. It's 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 a lot of it. It's just for me. So do you think there's some some sort of... It might be that there are
3: some jokes that are very close to the bone or that are very fresh that you feel you can't use yet, but in time you might be able to explore? Or do you expect that maybe once you've done this show that you're going to have completed a
1: yeah course of therapy in a way? I was thinking through the joke. There's one joke that I can't get to work, and I think it's because... I think uh, I'm learning that the audience has to know that you're okay for them to laugh. Yes. They won't laugh if they sense that you're like, still going through it and are, mm. it, this is a challenge for you. So there's one joke that I have about saying goodbye to him that I, I just have not been able to get to work on stage mm. and I can sense it. So I think it's because I'm not ready. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But come back next year for an <laughs> yeah. even sadder grief comedy show. <laughs> it really is. Is is peop. It's, it's it's Like, okay. This, I think this is a good way to to talk about the show. I was leafleting yesterday, and someone was like, "Oh, I love dark comedy." And just impulsively, I was like, "It's not dark comedy. Of course, it is. It's very dark comedy." But I'm not a dark comedian. Like, I never mm. did that before this. Like, I'm just a very Uh, loud, physical, horny gay comedian, and then this happened. So that's still the point of view, that's still the tone of the show.
3: We had yesterday, we had Sarah Mills here um, discussing her show, which is about her bowel cancer. She's uh, written a sort of an hour show about that process that she went through. And I asked her, like, being as honest or vulnerable in regards to your physical health as you were on this show, is that something that you are, have always been like? And she said no, it's like something that yeah. was necessitated by the experience. Hmm. She needs to, to, to tell the story of the experience and so then there it is. Right. It's not that she was desperate to tell us all about her sphincter yeah. um, <laughs> before that show. That's you know, exactly that right. Experience.
1: Yeah. I mean I tried to do normal jokes and I, I couldn't. I mean it's just like just I would go to clubs and just do my normal set, and it's just like when when something is that all-encompassing in your work and you're a comedian and you write and talk about what you think about and that's all you think about, it feels very weird to not talk about it.
3: So for both of you, do you find that, because this is quite... uh, see, for, for example, in the show that I do, there's nothing from my real life in it. I don't actually have a real life. I'm <laughs> an entirely fictional construct. So I don't feel like I have to be vulnerable in, in that sense on stage, and I'm sort of playing with something a bit different. But are you both natural? Do you have a natural inclination to being uh, naked emotionally? Because that must be what's required. Is that something comfortable? Or?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think of, for me, that came out, that side of me came out through comedy. Right. Um, before that, I was always very private um, because I was always afraid that people would judge me for the things that I would say, like if I had to bring up you know, the fact that I grew up poor or like my dead parents or like things like that. And then people would just feel bad for me. You know what I mean? And so I would never wanna bring up these things because yeah. I, I, so I'd avoid questions. And I'd always be the one asking people questions. And when I talked, it was always storytelling. I was just like a silly person who told stories to everybody. You know what I mean? I was just, just naturally a funny person and always trying to lighten up the mood just because of like life circumstances. I just like to laugh. So I'd always kind of be that person who would do that. But I would always avoid talking about my personal stuff. Um, and then uh, almost like, uh, yeah, it was almost like I was paranoid at one point of like people knowing too much about me. One of the things is I moved around a lot growing up. Mm-hmm. I changed like 10 schools growing up, so nobody ever really knew much about me. And so when then I was in situations where people wanted to know more, I was, it was not normal for me. Uh, for folks to really, like, know more than just the surface of who I was. Because I'd be at a school for a year, and then I'd move. Or six months, then I'd move. Or two years, maybe, then I'd move. Um, but then when I started doing comedy, I remember I I first got on stage, and I was like, oh, I don't want to talk about things like my race or being a woman, because people are going to pigeonhole me, and they're going to expect me to talk about certain things. And, and so I would I would make jokes about, like, casual things. and, and But it didn't it didn't sound like me, it didn't feel like me. And then I had this kind of moment with myself and I was like, well, if you're going to come up here and you're going to talk and you're going to, you know, d- make jokes, like you better find some kind of, you know, authenticity in your voice, right? Cause this is, this is who you are. This is what you're presenting to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and also knowing that, you know, um, the folks who identify with my story out there are, are going to want to see that realness. And that's kind of like almost my artistic responsibility. All of a sudden it felt like if I was going to tell my stories that I had to, if I was going to represent my race, that I had to do it in an authentic way. If I was going to represent my, my um, religion, I had to do it. So for example, I talk about being a Muslim woman and I also talk about sex in the same show mm-hmm. because I'm not what you would see as a Muslim woman classically if you identified somebody as a Muslim woman. But that is actually what the show is, is breaking all of these stereotypes. Mm-hmm and showing this like very authentic self that I have. And so, yeah, in comedy, and now as a person, because comedy has changed me, I have a hard time not being my very authentic, honest self all the time. <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah. Comedy's
3: kind of created a, a, a framework in which you feel comfortable being seen.
2: Yep, yeah, yeah.
3: 100%. I think it's, it's something, it must be something there about like, to make even small gestures towards your own authenticity um, like it's like letting light in because then it, it, it sort of bleeds into the rest of your life, well, right? Uh,
2: abso- that's a great metaphor. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it was.
3: Mm. How do you feel, Sam, in relation to like that? Do you feel, I mean, I, I wonder because, Yeah. well, actually, I'll let you speak. I have a thing I wonder, but I'll wonder it after you've spoken.
1: Oh, well, now I'm so curious about the wonderings. Mm. <laughs> I related to it so hard, but I don't really have anything profound to add. I just... You said that, and I think it just made so much sense for me. Yeah, just that you, you like, it does change you, and it, it you are you you like develop such a strong sense of self, mm. and it just changes you. Although you know, obviously, when I go off stage, I'm not gay. Of course. Yes. When you go to
3: the titty bars of Edinburgh, I love titties <laughs> famously. Yes. Yes, yes wow. you are a, a notorious titty botherer. Ah. Yes. Ooh, I also yeah. love alliteration. Yeah. You should put that on a put that on a thing. What I was going to ask is, I wonder, um, like there, it's very clear in my work that there is a persona being performed, <laughs> because I don't look like this. Um, <laughs> And I wonder, like, when you go on stage and when you, I mean, it's for both of you, but I, to me, I can see there being a version of yourself Mm -hmm. as a humorous gay man that's probably quite similar interpersonally to how you are on stage. That would be my assumption. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think sometimes, sometimes with, with straight guy comedians that I know, they're, I don't know, it feels like what they do on stage isn't actually the same as they are off stage. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? You know that thing if you sometimes hear about like, uh, a comedian will say that they went on a date and they tell the person that they're a comedian and then the person goes, oh, but you're not funny at all. <laughs> 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 you know?
2: Because <laughs> it's something Never that they only deploy. Tonight.
3: Whereas I know that the gays kind of it's part of our parlances to be basically stand-up comedians as uh-huh. people, mm-hmm. you know?
2: I think it's interesting because I think sometimes when you are from like, and I mean, maybe this is just a very bold statement that I shouldn't be making, but I think when you're from like an othered, mm-hmm. you know, um, that a coping mechanism often is to fit in is to make people laugh because it's very easy for people to like you or forgive your otherness yeah. or include you if yeah. you make them laugh because you're making them feel good. So now you have permission to stick around. 100%. You know? yeah.
3: yeah, absolutely. Um, so in your uh, in your various guises of life, Aaliyah, you've been a flight attendant at one point. Yeah, tell yeah. us about life in the
2: skies. Uh, I loved it. I really? loved it. It was so hard for me to leave, to be honest with you, because, you know, I, I like when I was a kid, I dreamt of traveling, and I and then, you know, I uh, found out how much plane tickets cost. <laughs> I <was> like, fuck. <laughs> I went to Tanzania to see my best friend uh, for her wedding. I used to live there, so I went back home. And uh, I worked for six months. I worked three jobs and saved every penny to be able to avoid this flight, which was $2,600 wow. in July just to go for her wedding. And so after that, I was like, well, how am I going to do this? Like, what work? Like, to the bone to be able to travel and then come back and it's not going to work. And so then I started thinking to myself, oh, I got to work and travel. I got to find a way to work and travel. And so then I started talking to people. And this is one thing that I like, I'm very resourceful when I need to do something, I want to do something, I make it happen. I'm like, life is short. I got to do it now. And so I started talking to people and then researching and then I talked to um Uh, uh, somebody who worked as a tour guide. I talked to somebody who worked as a travel agent. I talked to somebody who worked on cruise ships, and I talked to somebody who was a flight attendant. Like, I wrote a list of all the jobs that would let you travel, and then I talked to them, and I asked them, what are your benefits like? How often do you get to travel? Like, what is it actually like? And then of all of those, the flight attending was the best deal. Like, you got flight passes of your own to go and fly around the world on your days off. You got to, like, chunk your schedule together. So for, you know, like... I'm going to say about six or seven years until I then started stand-up and was working part-time. For six or seven years, what I'd do is I'd put all my days together. So I'd do like very much like, you know, a schedule of like a minor or something, you know what I mean? Or somebody who's working on a, uh, I'd do like a month of work straight and then I'd have like three we- three to four weeks off and I'd just fuck off and go somewhere and then I'd come back and do it all again. And it was like, I, was, I felt like a millionaire. It was great. You would have to deal with
3: people who are flying. <laughs> and I always feel like people in airports are, it's not people don't bring them their best selves to the airport do they no they don't there's something strange about it. like i don't know what it is do we have like some it's some there's spiritual actually a lot relationship of relationship to going in the air that just makes people suddenly a bit there's weird. a lot
2: of psychology behind it so like firstly think about like there are so many people um i think the the last time i was uh, reading about this many years ago i think it was they said something like 65% of folks are actually terrified of flying mm. they we don't actually think about it and we don't process it because it's too hard to process so we kind of just like in the back of our minds are like yeah. you know subconsciously afraid of what we're about to do get it because we don't understand any of it
0: yeah, we should. you know be we don't there, even see we?
2: where we're going you know there's no control at all and so we're t- but we don't say so already that fear when you think about how people behave on fear they're always going to be you know like uh, irritable and irrational and and all that and then they come to the airport and then since like you know, 9-11 and all like the, the fear that's been put into people yeah. about that one really it makes no sense, to be honest, if you look at the percentages of life and like what are the chances yeah, of that yeah. happening versus you getting into an accident on the streets here in a car. But we still are taught to be afraid. So then we have that fear. Now we come to the airport and now we know that we're like trying to get to a place, but there's going to be all kinds of things that we have to get through. And then when you go through, this is a very interesting that a psych a, a, like, like this Person who was one of our trainers, he had studied psychology before, and we ended up getting to this conversation. And he was telling me, he says, Aliyah, he says, when um, do you th- do you remember having to stand in line, mm. wait your turn, be told what to do, like you do in airport security, show up, yep. be told, uh, be like your attendance is taken, be told where to seat and uh, sit, and then listen to the person talking to in mm-hmm. school." Yeah. So we all, that child in us comes out as well, and then you see them on the airplanes hovering with their phones and we're like oh you got to put your phone away sir no don't take my toy yeah. this is my comfort I need this and we don't realize we're doing it but it's actually just all you know the way that yeah. we're behaving is just us you know the, the the things that are going on internally that we're not even recognizing is you know fear and uh and and triggers it's so annoying I would rather <laughs> swim
3: I would literally swim I'd rather swim <laughs> yeah I just ugh, I just it frustrates me you know because i live in london right and people for some reason people in london always think that you fly to scotland which i have never done right i always just get the train because i live near the i know it's very bizarre i'm like why would i go through the hassle jumping through all these stupid little hoops at the airport and you know i don't travel light so then i got to put my luggage in and then that's just a whole big thing
2: and the liquids and the gels and the blah blah blahs that's the most annoying thing you're like this Makes, I used to watch airport security, and I'd go through airport security, and they're taking away somebody's nail clippers. And in the meanwhile, Joe over here is walking through with a baseball bat. And I'm like, this. Uh, you know what right. I mean? Right. <laughs> I was working as a flight attendant, and I had a butter knife in my lunch bag. They took it away, and I'm like, are you insane? I'm going onto an airplane, I'm serving business class, we have steak knives, and I know that there's an axe on board, and I have the code to access it. You want to take my butter knife? <laughs> I know. <laughs> are you insane? <laughs>
3: Um, Sam, you, um, you I, well, so you go around America doing various different performances Like you do this sort of college circuit and stuff like that. Uh huh. Yeah. I know that you met your partner, however, in Provincetown. Yeah. And the partner who features in the show and um, Provincetown, if anyone doesn't know, is like a gay enclave. This is like mm. a little. It's is it a town or a village? Like I love small that word. It? Enclave? Yes, a nonclan. Don't know it's what that word means. Yeah. What is Because you met at it's Bear a Gay week. City. No, because <laughs> <laughs> you met at Bear Week, and I thought maybe some people won't know what Bear Week is, and then I thought it'd be quite funny for you to explain it to people. Oh, lovely!
1: <laughs> so Bear Week is a week. I love that there's a podcast that I don't know, no, no, so I turn out to four people. Hello, yes. <laughs> Bear Week is a um, um well Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, um, a bunch of uh, fat, hairy men fuck on a beach, and I participate. Any questions? (laughs) Bear Week is a a subculture of gay men that's very popular, and it's it's curvy, beautiful men who identify as bears and those that are attracted to them. And Anyone could be a part of the community. There's many animal categorizations. Many people call me an otter. Yes. Yes. Thank you. An you can offer. see. That's right. She's showing off the chest. Yes. And uh, they know, call the me a naked bears, mole rat. The silver d- <laughs> <laughs> Smooth from top
3: <laughs> to bottom. <laughs> oh. Do you oh, know what's no. said to me today, right? You so hang we, out with too many drag queens. We, <laughs> That's so
1: mean. <laughs> no, we, we do a show.
3: We have our wine tasting show that we do at midday every day. And it's really, really good fun. And people give tasting notes about the wine that we're teaching them about. And, but they also sometimes write notes about me. And for the listeners at home, I'm wearing a green dress, and so they said that I looked like it Kermit the Frog meets Bellatrix Lestrange. <laughs> oh, oh, oh
1: my! Oh, oh! And this
3: has been going round and round in my head all day, <laughs> and it can't be unseen. Regardless, it's <laughs> a good, look. It's, well, a good <laughs> look. it's a, it's a bold look, but it won't be repeated. <laughs> oh, I love your necklace. Like you. Well, you can't yeah. have it. Damn um, <laughs> it! That's all I compliment people for. As a funny person, Sam, you were in a relationship with someone who was quite a bit older than you. Mm. Um, sort of decades of age gap. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there is something... Uh, like w- is, it, is there a difference in the way that humour interacts in a relationship when you're across
1: generations like that? Oh, what a good question. A really yeah, good absolutely. Question. I think it's probably hard for me to articulate, but there's there's a lot of cultural differ i mean there's cultural differences in relationships for all kinds of different reasons but i think when you're um a 25 year old gay man dating a 50 year old gay man it's mm. it's different generations so you have different references and different things that make you laugh and but just just like anything you have barriers and you overcome that because of love Ugh. I hate being touching. It's beautiful. I
2: was <laughs> like, "Well, I've never seen you be this nice before." About it. <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> Is he having a breakdown? What's happening? But do you guys no, usually do you usually <laughs>
3: cross paths in like a you know in like a comedy bar after a show and you're really shit faced? Is that where you guys? No.
2: So we met in a, in a at a the NBC comedy uh, like competition basically. Um, and uh, the first year that we met, uh, Sam and I, we were in the same. Were we
1: waiting in that long line?
2: Did I not drop your coffee? Was that not you, or was that somebody else? I don't remember. I knocked remember. someone's. Co- I'm I... sure it was you. I knocked your coffee out of your hands. Well, just d- stop telling me. Okay. And then we had a laugh about it. <laughs> okay. And we were, and, and, I, and then we went in. And did our big. I remember
1: your audition. Yeah. Because everyone was not talented, but she was. Oh. No. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, but that thing was this crazy thing. I they don't do it anymore. I think 2019, my year was the last year they did it. Is it? Yeah. Okay. But the the they they make everyone stand out in line literally overnight. So we I stood out. I don't know about you, but I stood I out. I got an invitation for that night. one, so
2: I didn't have to. I'm sorry of to say. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: But I actually hustled. <laughs> you you know, stood in line. No, in 2018 I did. In, in 2019 yeah. I didn't. But the it, you stand out all in line with a bunch He's... of people and for, to audition for the NBC executives for one minute. Wow. One minute. And then, yeah. minute. Isn't that and then they give you a callback, and then there are semifinals, and there's like seven yeah. and then there's. He's being humble and...
2: though. So this was in 2018 that we, we met, and he was lining up. But in 2019 he made it out to the finals and was smashing it everywhere. Were you not? mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. <laughs> well you've done quite well yourself Aaliyah, um because you're not just um doing sort of comedy you're also an actress yeah Um, tell us about your film because i know that it's uh, been very well received in fact so Aaliyah's in a movie that is now shown on the flights that she used to work on as an air hostess <laughs>
2: yeah, that's really cool <laughs> <So> <laughs> it's really cool tell us
3: about the movie a canadian film
2: uh yeah uh so the film it is playing on the airplane which i've I'm like, girl, I went from in-flight service to in-flight entertainment. (laughs) Imagine if
3: you still work there and then like
0: you're... This is...
2: Okay, so let me tell you what happened. I actually... So I wasn't working there like I was unofficially still on the roster because I I took some time off on leave and then COVID happened, so I was laid off and then they called us all back and before that I'd been working part-time. When they called us back, they said you got to come back full time. I'm like, I can't come back full time. I have a whole other career. Mm. And they're like, you have no choice. And I was like, well, I guess the choice is that this is the time I got to leave. So I took the retirement package, and I finished working there at the end of February. In March, they started putting my movie up, and I was like, man, if there had oh. been an overlap, I would have been like making my announcements, like, and if I make make a suggestion for your in-flight entertainment, <laughs> you might recognize somebody on your tiny screens, you know. But I couldn't do it. And all the flight attendants and pilots were always t- sending me screenshots people watching my movie it's really cute but the film itself so the film is an incredible film i i I must say it's it's, um i mean it's won eight canadian academy awards Mm -hmm. um and uh it was a really independent film uh like so independent that we had to bring our own wardrobes uh so they really had not a lot of money and i remember my agent saying to me alia these indie films are never going to get you anywhere
3: <laughs> I still did it. But you were nominated, is that right?
2: I was nominated for best yeah. actress, yeah. yeah, and a lead role, which was cool, because uh, that was my first film. <laughs> so,
3: it what was... do agents really know anyway? Yeah. That's why I don't bother having one.
2: But you know, it was a because it was just because the character was so the character stood out so much and the story was so different. Like it was so authentically representing, uh, you know, a, a you know folks on the margins of society, people that we don't ever get to see. And when we do, it's usually, you know, they have these expressions of like poverty porn and stuff like this, mm-hmm. but it wasn't done like that. It showed these communities that are underrepresented and underserved, but it showed both the the challenges that they face as well as the beauty of the community that exists there. And like the character that I played was a hijabi Muslim woman. So I was wearing like a, a headscarf. And uh, you know, when I first read the audition, I was like, oh, They're trying to cast me for another Muslim woman. Let me guess. She's scared and running from her husband, you know, which is like the classic shit I get. And then I read it, and I was like, oh, she's smart. She's powerful, and she's silly, which when do they ever cast Muslim women as silly? If you wear a hijab, you're obviously going to be very reserved and oppressed, right? So that stood out, and I was like, I have to do this. And I was in Australia. I auditioned for it. Um, I submitted my self-tape. And they are like, we love you, we want to see you. And I was like, I'm in Australia for another month. I won't be able to see you in person. And they said, we'll wait. And I was like, oh, shit. Mm. And so then they waited. And when I got back uh, after my tour, um, I did the second audition. And it was honestly just an incredible experience. And it's such a great film. I'm so proud of it. Was your background in acting or was
3: this like a sort of gear shift?
2: Um. So I, I talk about this a bit in my show, but I... W- I used to act when I was younger, um, and I was clearly had a natural talent for it. Like you know, when I was uh, in uh, I was 15. No, sorry, I was thir- 13 or 14, um, and I was like the youngest year in high school, so I was in grade eight. Mm-hmm. Um, I was cast for the lead role in the in the school play, mm-hmm. which is this is nothing. But to give you an idea of you know, um, I was cast for that, and then I ended up winning the best. Actor slash actress award of the school, and I was the youngest was person. The uh, it was just a, like a Christmas play, and it was whatever happened to Ebenezer Scrooge, mm. and I was like the love affair that he was having. But I was so young, and they never, they never, um, yeah, we did a fake kiss on but stage. I don't
3: remember him having a love affair. No, we rewrote it. It was oh like, my the, God, this it is like the, the, the carol. it was the continuation. It
2: was the continuation. It was saucy, but. <laughs> <clears throat> but then I won this award at the school, and I was the youngest person to ever win it. I was the first girl to ever win it. I was the first person of color to ever win it. So it was clear that I was like just naturally a good actor. Um, but then my dad, um, we kept moving, and he w- wasn't a fan of me, acting, um, and dancing, which I was doing when I was younger, which is something my mom really encouraged. But then because he was worried, he was worried. He had the best intentions and I was very, very good at science and math. So I was pushed in that direction and I just kind of forgot those dreams, those acting dreams, it, yeah. just cause it wasn't an option. So I just kind of put it in the back of my mind very far away, but I always wanted to be an actress when I was younger. I just forgot. And then I became a stand-up comedian by accident. And then, and then one day somebody sent me this audition. And I was like, that's... And they found me through my website. Because mm. they said, we've, we've been searching for someone. We haven't found the right person yet. And we wrote down all of the qualities the person needs. We need somebody who's outgoing, somebody who can improvise because you're working with children. Somebody who's funny, somebody who can take the lead in a scene, and all these. And and as they were doing that, because they couldn't find the right person, they said, "We might need to look at stand-up comedians." And that's how they found me. So as much as like, I kind of was like, "Oh, this is my first film," and I. In my heart, I was an actress before yeah. this ever happened. I just forgot.
3: <laughs> you know, Robin Williams went on to win an Academy Award. There's definitely, there's a, I can say, I think a lot of acting, especially on screen, is the ability to appear natural, as in, you know, it, it's, Catherine Hepburn once said, because I know everything she ever said, um, <laughs> once said to uh, Anthony Hopkins, they were in the movie The Lion in Winter, and Anthony Hopkins went, I don't know what to do. I you don't know, how to, uh, how should I do the part? And Catherine, Hep- oh, that was a terrible. Was a ter- it was a great accent. And <laughs> Catherine he- Hepburn said, "I'm not going to do it." Catherine Hepburn. Um, Catherine <laughs> Hepburn, actually, I will do it. She said, "Just read the lines, <laughs> leave the acting to me, <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> because all you need to do
3: is just say the thing, you know." Bravo. And it's the lack of self consciousness that makes for a good screen performance. I think. Yeah, totally. Yeah.
2: And and I think also that there's something to be said about like comedic timing and and uh, and like you know the, the, those things are you know there's a lot of great comedians that are great actors because mm. the, the, the the timing as well of like existing in those moments. Um, I could
3: imagine Sam, I could imagine you'd being quite sitcomy if the opportunity arose. Oh, thank you. Yes. yes. <laughs> How you you that react. was a very sitcomy um, answer. Am I right in saying you've written a pilot?
1: I have yeah you have written a pilot. Yeah, I've it? written a, a good amount of TV shows and I, I wrote for. One in 2019, and uh, I like writing because I like money. Yes. Nice. Yes. And they hire whether me. they use it or not, right? It's the
2: name <laughs> of his next show, I Like
1: Money. <laughs> I Like Money, yes. Okay, anti-Semitic. Really? <laughs> really? Well, I mean, Tip I was getting tap. you back.
2: <laughs> <like> <laughs>
3: <laughs> what do you do? when I always think, because I don't write anything, so I always wonder, like, because for me, lat- making a joke or something is like a social interaction. Yeah. So a canon builds up over time. You know, yeah. I've been performing for like a thousand years. And like a canon builds <laughs> up. Do you sit at a desk and then go,
1: right, now here come the funny things? That seems... When I do stand-up, I walk around. I live near McCarran Park in Brooklyn and I walk around the park and I just talk to myself and everyone thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> but I can't write stand-up. Other, I-, I have to do it out loud. But when I'm... Uh, well, no, for the most part, I need a walk around. I also have ADHD, so that's also a part of it, but I, I certainly, even when I'm writing like uh, TV or just jokes for uh, anything, I just, I have to uh, stand up, walk around, talk it out, and then I put it down. And then usually the edit process is where I'm sitting there and I'm like trying to make everything as efficient as possible. Mm-hmm. Economy of words, all that.
3: Yeah. Um, A question I've been asking the comedians that are here doing the podcast with me is, like, are you happiest on stage? It's very interesting. Some people are, some people aren't. You have
1: such good questions. I was not prepared. I was like, I'm just going to come on there and be catty and mean. And you were, like, uh, really getting into the artistic integrity of it all. I love it. Well, you know, one likes to dig beneath
3: it. Actually, I think that our podcast, right, we had some really cool people on it. We had... um, We've had some MPs, and we had Lorraine Kelly, who's a national treasure here, and one of the things that we put, Nathan knows what I'm gonna say, is that we put in our tagline is we, that we, we offer them a classic innuendo that we're trying to go deeper mm. with mm-hmm. Vanity Von Glow. Mm. Um, you know, so, yeah, are, you, are is, is stage the moment where you're most free, most happy, or what does happiness mean in that context?
1: No, go right ahead.
3: Um, oh,
2: I yeah, no I, I mean, to be honest, I... <laughs> That's a really tough one to answer. I, I have, for sure, great moments of happiness in life. I love to be outdoors and adventure. And, you know, I, I travel and I, I, I meet new people and I love. And there's so much happiness in that. Spending time with people I love, yeah. um, sharing meals with folks. So like, I wouldn't say it's the happiest, but it's definitely a, a, a very different feeling. And I think for me, it's more than just happiness. I feel very fulfilled on stage. Um, because in the moments where I'm sharing these these um, stories with folks and they're laughing I mean there's twofold there's one is there they like, the affirmation you get of being seen and realizing that your story is of importance that it's resonating with other folks and feeling like oh i'm where i'm supposed to be like oh, you know the, the 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 weird journey i took to get here and all the lessons i learned along the way brought me to this moment where i'm supposed to be and that's how i feel like every time i'm on stage mm-hmm. uh, and then the other side of it is is energy i'm i'm up there making folks laugh but those laughs are coming at me. Those, those vibrations yeah. are coming in my direction. Yeah. And that's, you know, like, it, last night, we had a full house that was 70 people laughing and giving that positive energy and those good vibrations in my direction. Yeah, for sure, I'm beaming. I'm beaming. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Try to be that answer, no, sucker.
1: No, you're so articulate, <laughs> you asshole. <laughs> okay, sure. Um... I
2: practiced ahead of time. Yeah. <laughs> I got the questions, didn't you? No. No, I don't do homework. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. ADHD, I remember? <laughs> I did not. I, I'm also ADHD. I got you, baby. Oh, really? Yeah. Totally. I just got
1: diagnosed before I came here, and the, doc, the doc, my doctor was like, "Well, I don't want to give you some medicine before you're about when you're about to leave the country." So I, I literally just got yeah. diagnosed undiagnosed ADHD. Oh. Add that to add, what was it? Anxious, asthmatic, gay, Anxious, diabetic gay, Jew. You missed
3: one. <laughs> do you know that there are more <laughs> prescriptions for ADHD? In Canada, then there can be statistical instances of ADHD. Right. So, like, wow. a lot in, of, yeah, and it's a lot of Canada? the time, a lot of the time, bec- yeah, in Canada. And it's- you lot know, of it's the, the same it's
1: thing with gays and poppers. <laughs> <laughs> ah.
3: Think about that. You know, I think it's because a lot of, like, you know, it's, I think that sometimes schools will erroneously classify kids as ADHD because yeah. it makes them easier to manage them if they can put them on Ritalin and whatever.
2: Mm. Because people's right?
3: Because they put them on, is it Ritalin? Yes. Yeah. Because then, you know, if you've got a rowdy kid and they're having problems at home, it's like, they're ADHD, you know, shut up.
2: Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. I, uh, I'm i actually, so when I said I'm ADHD, I have to fully confess that it's self-diagnosed. Uh, I also don't take any of the medication. Mm. Um, but I also was like, nobody ever followed me when I was younger because I moved around so much. So there was no diagnosing. And then I found out it costs $1,000 to get the, the mm. and I'm like, well, for what? what? I'm In not going to take Canada? the test anyway. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I know. People think we have all-inclusive health care. It doesn't cover your brain. It doesn't cover your teeth. It doesn't cover your eyes. It's crazy. Anyway.
3: Do you know what? It doesn't fucking cover your teeth here, as I learned. it cost £500. But because I'm a singer, I can get it all in the tax, oh, can well I? Well done. Absolutely fabulous. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Now, Sam, happiest on stage? <sighs> I thought you forgot. I think h- no.
1: I think I mean, I think yes, maybe in the literal sense like I think yes in the sense that like uh if I was on ketamine right now and you measured dopamine levels, like I it may be quite literally happiest. Oh, Does that make same. sense? Like I see comedy as like it's not an actual fulfilling happiness. It's like long term and sustained. Like you were saying, like friends, family, love. Those are the things that mattered. But it's very fun and it makes me happy. But it, I don't think it's um not that it's not real happiness, but it's just, it's like, a, it's, it's basically, it's like a hit of dopamine. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I suppose it's important to not co- misconstrue fun for happiness or like that sort of, you know, excitement. And cause I think there's a difference, although it's interesting earlier, because from what you, your answer to that question almost suggested that there is a sense of peace when you're on stage, hundred oh, you know, yeah, almost yeah. the other end of, uh, cause I think you can be happy in an excited
1: way, but also happy in a really
3: sort of, restful, accepting way yeah. as well. Yeah.
1: But I feel like just that, as in life, there are those moments when you're on stage mm-hmm. where it all comes together, where it's very fun, but it's also very fulfilling and you feel like it's just the things are coming together, yeah. like your, your, your mind and the jokes and your soul and like your intentions and your purpose, and it all comes together on stage. But that also happens when you're hiking. Yes. I don't do Am that. Am I making any sense? I feel like you guys <laughs> no, are looking no, it like, does, what it, it, is this hippie this show, is talking I, about? I, I, I,
2: I do understand what you're saying. I do think that makes sense for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the answer
1: is no. And now we know. Or
2: how about, <laughs> or how about a sometimes? I feel like a sometimes. I
1: guess sometimes. You know? It's just, I don't, I don't see that performance is my purpose in life. Okay. No. I, yeah. It is my yeah. purpose, maybe in my career. But I don't think it's the most important thing in the world. And of course, you still one thing I was thinking is that you still have to do a
3: show whether you're happy or not, right? Oh, it's so like I could be. It feels like work all the time. You know, uh, you
1: know. It doesn't feel like
2: work to me. All the admin feels like work. All the What are you talking about?
1: Show 19 at Edinburgh. There's four of the meanest Scotland assholes you've ever met, and they're sitting at you going, "Tell me your secrets," and you have to perform for an hour. The meanest Scotland assholes. (laughs) I, I mean, maybe I just haven't Sorry. had that audience.
3: <laughs> no, I, I think they've come to some of my shows. Um, how are you both enjoying the Edinburgh? Friend? Have you both? Have you been to Edinburgh before, both of you? No, first, your, first a time. First, it's yeah. a, debu- a debut. I'm a debutante. It's talk. a beautiful city. Right? <laughs> I wonder because we have some people in in the room just now who might have questions for you both. So it's always uh, I sometimes forget to say at the t- start that if anyone has a question, um, you can uh, you can ask it at the end. So does anyone have a question for either of our lovely guests today?
2: Yeah. I do have a show on the festival, yeah. So my show here is called Where Are You From From. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, oh, thank you, sir. Thank There's
3: you. Some I'll amorous attention in the audience today.
1: <laughs> How lovely! <laughs> but Did that's even better than a question. Like a question.
3: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, listen to all of you for joining us here in the flesh and in person. We're very grateful that you are here. This is. Um, this has been. Uh, we have. We're having a quiet run of this talk show here at the at the Fringe. Um, But there are listeners at home or there will be listeners at home when this goes up. So we thank you all very much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to The Vanity Project and to share it far and wide. And if you are in Edinburgh, you can come and see Sam Morrison in Sugar Daddy. It's at 6.20 p.m pretty much every day. Um, Aliyah Kanani, where are you from? From at 7.40 p.m. every day, so you could see you both yes. if you were very mm-hmm. fast and nimble and got from one venue to the other. Yeah,
1: There you go, back to back, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it should be that, what time did your start? Yeah, seven, my answer seven
3: is 7.15. You've got like 20 minutes and to get. And they're close by the yeah. venues. You maybe even have time to, you know, have a gin and tonic oh. in between shows. Which oh. I, I would suggest. Very exciting. We prefer p- if you had Prosecco. Yes. We talked about I can that stand beforehand. By that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you don't always get what you want. You should come to my wine tasting. We don't have Prosecco. <gasps> Ooh. I was kind of
2: hoping for an invitation, but she looked at you, so I'm not so sure. So sorry. <laughs> well, you'll
3: be busy. Can you bring a plus one?
2: I'll t- I'll be sandwich no, You plus. have to
3: come. It's at midday. So some of the comedians have been like, "I'm not going to come to a wine tasting at midday because then I'm not going to be sharp for the rest of the day." Oh, and I can I'm be like, sharp. Pull yourselves together. You know what I
2: mean? Mm. You there's two no. things. You either just keep going or go home and take a nap. Well, right. That's the best thing. I love having a, like a couple day drinks, a little nap, and then a show. Or what take a-, a nap in the meadows,
3: and this man in the front row might find you <laughs> whilst you're sleeping. <laughs> oh and when, God!
2: When that happens, nice. but I wake <laughs> up, he's just petting my hair.
3: <laughs> <laughs> to both of my guests, thank you so much um, for being here on the Vanity Project. Thank, thank, you. You, for thank
1: us. you. Thank you. Thank you.